Well, again, good morning, church, and Merry Christmas. It's wonderful to be together today. Uh, thankful for this opportunity to, to preach the Word of God. If, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew Sanders. I have the joy of being one of the pastors here at Clayton Valley Church, and I'm thankful for this opportunity uh, to preach. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our series in 1 John this morning. Uh, getting back into this series, which we've been in for a decent part of uh, 2021. That's still this year, right? Last Sunday of 2021. Are we glad to see it go? We were gladder to see 2020 go. Um, wouldn't you like to know, <laughs> wouldn't you like to know 2022 is going to be better? Do you like to know things? I, I find myself enjoying knowing things. Um, and I don't know how this plays out in your life, but I, but I, like, I like to know, I like to plan. Knowing, knowing really helps things. Like if you're going on a trip, knowing where you're going is helpful, right? It's, it's really helpful. It helps you know how you're going to get there, when you're going to know you're going to get there. Uh, with our family, we have to do a lot of, a lot of planning. We have four children, and we, I, I would like to know when potty breaks are going to be. It'd be fantastic, because if you could time those up with a gas station stop... You're saving time. Uh, it's nice to know where you're going to stay that night. Adrian and I have ended up in some weird places, not knowing how far our children were going to make it into the night, and accidentally staying at a place called, what was it, Super 6 or Motel 8. It was like that combination of two chains where they mixed them together so that weary travelers at 1.30 a.m. will think they're staying at a legitimate place. But as you walk into your room, you're sure you will be murdered by the morning. It was one of those places. So it's, like, it's, nice, it's nice to know what we're going to be facing. It's nice to know what we're going to need to know as we approach things. I'm not sure if you've ever had a new job and they just set you loose on it. You're like, I don't know how to do this. It's fine. You'll figure it out. That's not a very comforting feeling, is it? And so knowing is this thing that, that brings us assurance. It brings us confidence. It's this thing that helps us know that we're traveling along the right way and along the right path. It helps us know to continue going ahead because we know what we're headed for. Even when we face difficulties along the ways, we, we know certain things. And our passage this morning is all about knowing. And so if you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, we're going to be reading through this together this morning, beginning in verse 10. Now, we've been in Ruth for the last four weeks, so I thought it might be helpful uh, to think through what we've covered so far in the book of 1 John, because knowing is a really big theme from this book. We haven't arrived there yet, but 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John actually tells his readers, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. He's writing this letter to this church that they might know because of the benefits of knowing. And so the major points of this book begin in chapter 1. I want to read verse 1 through 4 to you. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, 
The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John writes off with what they know. And they know it because they saw it. They know it because they heard it. They know it because they touched it. They know it because they've experienced it. They know it because they lived with it. It being the eternal life of God, Jesus Christ. And because they they know this eternal life, they know they have fellowship with God. And they don't just want to have that and keep it for themselves. They want their readers to know this same thing. So he begins with the things that he knows. And how knowing will impact us. If you're following along in John, 1 John chapter 1, 5 through kind of 2, 11, John teaches them more things about what they can know. They can know that God is light. They can know that God is light. And knowing that God is light helps us understand that knowing God changes a person. If you're going to have a relationship with a God, the living God, the eternal omnipotent God you will be changed. And you can know this. It changes us. That God who is in the light as we are with him in relationship with him, it means we're walking in the light. And you know what? One thing about light is it tends to expose things. You ever been, <laughs> always, I've told this story before. I, it's just, it works. I used to get dressed in the dark in our room because I didn't want to wake Adrian up in the morning. And then I get halfway through my day and as the day grows brighter, I would notice like I have this child's spit up on the back shoulder that I could not see when the room was dark was finally revealed when there was enough light. And and the point that I make because of this is, is as you grow in fellowship with God, you know what it does? It exposes the darkness of our lives and, and the habit we're coming out of in walking in the light. And so walking in the light means a confession and admitting of sin and this process whereby We're being cleansed from sin. It's a new attentiveness and obedience to the commands of of Jesus. And John specifically points out this command, loving your brother. In John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, John talks about how we know that we can't love God the Father and love the world at the same time because the world and the Father are opposed to one another. In verse 18 through 27, we know that the people opposed to Jesus will try and deceive you. And all that you need to know has been given to you in his word. There is no new revelation that you need. Everything you need to know is here, has been given to you from the beginning when the message of Jesus Christ was delivered. There's nothing new that you need to know. What you need to know is is here. That's chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse 28 through 310, John talks about this, that we can know who God's children are. We can know who belongs to God. And, And he creates this dichotomy. John's all about like two camps. 
You know, you're either for us or against us. You know, that kind of a mentality. John is, John is very much like that at, throughout this gospel. There's, there's light versus dark. There's love versus hate. There's righteous versus unrighteous. There's God versus the devil. So it's this like he's putting people into their camps and parties. And, and, and I know that happens a lot in our society. Sometimes we don't like, do you guys like being put in camps? <laughs> no, none of us do. But John's camps are important. They're important and they're real and they exist and they're the truth that God has revealed. And, and so John talks about actually the, the, this privilege that we may have to be God's children. And that we can know who God's children are because God's children are the ones who are, who are practicing righteousness like God their father is righteous. That God's children aren't constantly living in opposition to him. In chapter 3, John says that Jesus came to do away with the work of the devil. He came to destroy the works of and the devil and that no one in fellowship with Jesus is going to live a life of, of ongoing, unrepentant sin. But rather their life is going to be a life of practicing and living after what God himself is and being light and righteous and pure. And so John divides the world into two spheres. The children of God and the children of the devil. And he says everyone lands in one of those camps. And if you begin to think of the world like that, Everybody lies in one of these camps. It becomes quite apparent, at least to me, that you'd want to know where you land, right? That you'd want to know and have an assurance of, of which camp am I in. I don't want to be guessing at that. I don't want to leave that up to the end of my life. I, I want to know and to have an assurance of that. And that's the beauty of the passage that we're in today. John's intent in our passage this morning is to make it abundantly clear to God's children that you are indeed his child. God is not cruel. He does not desire that you would be kept guessing, but that you would know. Did you ever grow up and, and have that question in your mind, I wonder if I'm adopted? Anybody ever wonder that? <laughs> my wife. We have this discussion all the time. Like, I wonder if my parents are actually my parents. Do you guys see the Truman Show? That's how old I am. It's an old movie. But this idea of, is, am, I, am I really, do I really belong to God? And God is not a cruel parent who wants to keep you guessing, but a loving father who desires that, that you would know and who makes childhood available to everyone through Jesus Christ, that you might know that you are indeed a child of God. And what a, an amazing privilege that is. And so we're going to look at this passage because knowing helps us prepare and it helps us to remember and it helps us progress through this life as God's children. And so I'm going to read our passage this morning. Uh, we, we, uh, we want to honor God's word. And so I'm going to ask that you rise with me as I read and stand as we read 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. 
by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. That you would impress the truth of your word onto your people this morning. Lord, I pray that it would be for the assurance of your children, for their encouragement and their hope their dedication to continuing in this gospel. And I pray, Lord, for those who are not your children, that it would be your grace to reveal to them the opportunity to become a child of God by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that they may repent and believe and be born again. Bless us in this time, Lord, I pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. As we begin looking through this passage, how do we know and how does knowing help us? As we look at verse 11 through 15, uh, we see first of all that this dichotomy happens in, in verse 10, the separation, children of God versus children of the devil, the one not practicing righteousness nor the one who does not love his brother. And he gives us this, this message which came from the beginning. This is not a new message. This is something that if you're a believer, you've heard. We should love one another. We should love one another. And walking through this section, what do we see? We see this negative example as, as John points over to the person of 
of Cain. And maybe you're new here, maybe you're visiting, maybe you're online and you're like, who in the world is Cain? Cain happens like right after the apple over here. Um, it's, it's very near to the beginning story of the Bible. Adam and Eve had two children, Cain and Abel. And it talks about these, these two sons of theirs. One brought a sacrifice before the Lord and the Lord was pleased with it. That was Abel. And then Cain brings a sacrifice to the Lord and the Lord was not pleased with it. And the Lord has this conversation with Cain about if you do what is right, you will be accepted. As Abel had faith in the Lord and in his righteousness offered something to the Lord that the Lord accepted. But Cain, Cain took his brother out into the field. And the text is quite, quite graphic. It says he butchered him. He takes the man out into the field and he killed him. And our passage here this morning explains that Cain was of the evil one. That would be the devil. And he slayed his brother. Why? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He hated Abel. And he hated Abel because Abel was a constant embodiment of righteousness. Abel represented Something that Cain knew he was not. Abel, as righteous, had relationship with God. And the presence of Abel reminded Cain that he was unrighteous. That he had no fellowship with God. And he hated him for it. And he killed him. And John takes this moment to say to his readers, stop being surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I think sometimes, are you ever surprised when you face hatred? It's like, oh, I'm such a nice person. How could people hate me? Now, from the beginning, there has been this war against righteous people by evil men. And so really, Christian, you have no reason to be surprised if and when the world hates you. It's just stop being surprised is really what the thrust of the text is. Stop being surprised by that. You've been told time and 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 time, and time again really shouldn't surprise you when it happens. I was reading this book by Cal, uh, Nick Ripkin uh, called The Insanity of God, and he was interviewing um, believers in the former USSR. And the, former, the believers in the USSR were, were talking about the persecution that they underwent for years. It was regular to be thrown in prison. It was regularly to be taken from your family. It was regular to face intimidation, to face torture, to face all kinds of evils because of the Christian faith. And, and Nick explains how there was this one morning where he was interviewing these, these pastors and he's like, why, why haven't you written these things down? Like, why aren't you telling the world about this? And the pastor, it says, he thought about it for, for a few moments and he said, you have children, right? I said, yeah. He goes, how often do you wake them up early in the morning?" Before the sun comes up, and you point to these, and you guys, guys, the sun is going to come up. And Nick says, I, I don't ever do that. And I'm not sure, do you ever do that? The sun is going to come up. Like, it's going to be a surprise. Watch. Like, that happens all the time. And the pastor made the point, he said, so it is with persecution here. It's nothing surprising the sun comes up, you're unsurprised by it. Persecution and hatred arises to Christians in the USSR. Why is that surprising? And, and that's the point that John is, is making, that this hatred is really, it's a family feud. 
It is the Hatfields versus the McCoys. It's the Warriors versus any team LeBron is on. It, it is, it is a, an opposition between two spheres. Between God and the devil and the children of God and the devil. And the children of the devil and the devil always hate the children of God. Now there's a tenderness in this, this moment from John. This disciple who, who often refers to his readers as his beloved and, and little children. He now identifies them as his brothers. He puts himself on equal in this section, which is actually quite helpful because he gives clarity that he's not referring to all people. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And he's using this term brothers to refer to the family of God. Now that's really helpful when we look at verse 14. If you have your Bibles open, look at it with me. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. What's he talking about? This book is about knowing that you have eternal life. And eternal life is more than just existing forever. We're all going to exist forever. That, that's probably a terrifying truth. We are all going to exist forever. But eternal life is a restored relationship with God that is actually the definition of living. In other words, John equates life with knowing God. And to give an example, um, I'll go back to 2020. I, 2020 was hard, right? Do you guys remember lockdown? <laughs> Who can forget? And I remember asking the kids in youth group, if you could live forever, but you had to be alone in your own room with no contact with the rest of the world, doing nothing but sitting in your room. Would you want that? Anybody want that? And, and the point I make because of that is that existing is not the same as living. Does that make sense? We, we all know, you know this in your heart, that existence is not the same thing as living. And that's the point that this gospel is driving at, that just existing is not the same thing as living. And to actually live, you have to be in relationship with the God who is life. And so he says, like, how do we know we've come into this relationship? How do we know we've passed from death into life? Death being existing with a sentence of eternal condemnation. How do you know? He says this, those who are loving God's family, you know. <laughs> let, that, let that sink in for just a second. It's like, how do I know? You know the things that you just know? <laughs> like, you know them. How do you know that's true? Like, I don't even know how to begin explaining I know that's true. I know it. What's my name? My name is Andrew. How do I know my name is Andrew? Uh, my parents told me. I've been called it my whole life. I think I saw a birth certificate one time. Like, I just know it. I don't even think about it anymore. I know it. And John is talking about knowing something, the, the fact that we have gone from death or eternal condemnation out of relationship with God over into life of eternally existing in fellowship with God. And we can know this invisible 
distinction through the visible manifestation of love for his people. And that's why it's important that, that John uses the term brethren. It's not just like Christians are supposed to be loving in general. That's true. It's not what John's talking about here. That's not how you know you're a Christian. It's not how you know you've you transferred over. You know it because of your response and the internal relationship with the people sitting next to you here this morning. You will know it because you know the change that has happened in you towards God's people. You know that you have changed camps because your heart towards God's family has changed and you can see it in your life in the way that you're loving. The ongoing affection and concern for the family of Jesus is the telltale mark of those who have passed from death to life. And I want to point that out real quick, that it's the mark of, it's not the cause of. Does that make sense? In other words, trying to stir up in your heart love for the people around you, that will not cause you to be saved. But John's saying that love in your heart for the people around you in his family is the evidence that you have been saved. It's like the RPM gauge on your, when you start your car in the morning. Like may, pretend you can't, see, you can't see the engine. I know you can hear it. But you see that little RPM gauge go, and sitting there, you're like, oh, my engine's running. And so love in your life for God's people is, is the display that something has happened inside of you that has transformed and changed you. So John presses even further. He says that the one not loving abides in death. That we all understand that, that Cain who killed Abel, the guy's a murderer. He obviously doesn't have eternal life, right? We get that. But John makes an even harder point and says it's not, it's not just the one that we, we see the visible manifestations of, of hate. It's the one who doesn't love. It's the one whose life is not characterized by care and affection for God's people. And I think often we think of hate, like think of the word hate for a minute. Did you do it? I'm just going to trust that you did it. Passionate feeling of dislike, right? Is that, that adequate to say? Like we think of, of hate as as passion. Does that make sense? We often think of it as like a very active thing. You're probably thinking, well, I don't really hate anybody. But in this passage, hate can be far more tempered and civilized than we would think. Because John says, anyone not loving abides in death, which is the same sphere as hate. So anybody feeling, you know, maybe you just hold somebody in disfavor or you're you're really not inclined to them or you just don't have a lot of regard for them. You don't see them. You don't care about them. You don't have affection for them. You don't know their name. You don't care to know their name. Does that make sense? He expands that definition of hate to include not, not loving, which is far wider and broader than any of us would feel comfortable with, right? I, w- I was reading this passage and studying and the Lord just, man, convicted me that, oh, the blood that ran through Cain's vein is so tempting to live in mine as well. That just, just disregard for people. 
It's, it's not just, it's not that I would go out and remove their existence from the earth, but I sure wouldn't cry if they were removed. And it's that attitude, an ongoing presence of, of that hatred or lack of love that John says is evident in those who have no eternal life. You can know by your love for the family of God. And knowing helps us prepare. It helps us prepare because we can stop marveling when we're hated. Okay? So Christian, if you consider yourself a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are loved by God and destined to be hated by the world. Because the world is in opposition. So you don't have to wonder. You don't have to be surprised. It doesn't have to hit you upside the head. Okay? That will be helpful in our life. But knowing also helps us to remember. And that's what we see in verse 16 through 18. That knowing this helps us remember. It helps us remember because it helps us remember what love is and where we learned it. Look with me again at at verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. It's a very short sentence. John doesn't dwell on it long. But that is a thought that that is worth spending some time on. I'm not sure if you're a note taker. But if you were to sit and just consider that question, that, that sentence right there for some time this afternoon or in prayer throughout this week, that we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, that would be some beneficial thinking, my friends. Because it causes us to remember what love is. And we know what love is, remembering where we learned love. We know what love is because God displayed his love for us, that Jesus laid aside his life for us. This is how we know what love is. To remember that this is the place where we have learned it, to remember the benefits to ourselves of this love that we have experienced it. And to know it. And to know it in a way where it's not, it's not just a fact of history. But to know this, the depth and the extent of this love which we have learned from God himself. In such a way that it begins to affect us. As we sit and think on how we have learned love and what Jesus actually did. That we feel it. Transforming and shaping our thoughts. That we see the value of such love. That it crowds out all other definitions of lesser love that the world gives. And then to know that God's love 
of us in this way obliges us to the same. Do you see that in the text? We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, I think the more time we spend thinking about love and where we've learned it and how it has transformed us, the more we will be good with the thought of, yes, this obliges me joyfully and willingly to lay down my life on the behalf of others. And I think that that hearts that have been warmed by the fires of God's own love cannot help but put off the same kind of heat. That our hearts, having been transformed by God's love, are transformed to love like God loves. We're obliged to the same thing. And then John gives this hypothetical question, but whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, how could one who has learned love from the Lord Jesus Christ, who has experienced it, how could they not do something so simple as provide for their brother in need? And I think in this way, we see, we see kind of two poles of love. Like there's the kind of love where you lay down your life on behalf of others. In other words, what Jesus did. He gave up his life on the cross. Now I'm looking at all of you today and I know that you haven't done that because you're sitting here. So you have not lived in that way. We're, we're obligated to live in that way. But John gives us another example of, well, what about this? What about the times in our lives? Because this is more far likely to be applicable to you in your, in your daily life. I don't expect that any of you today will have to lay down your life for the sake of another for Jesus. Like I just, I'm not expecting to live that out today. But what about the simple thing like where you see somebody who has need and you have God's supplies? That's a far more practical application of love, isn't it? And John points it out, he says, how can the one who has what what God has provided to him and, and sees his brother in need, how could that person close up their heart and shut them off from mercy and grace and compassion and just like, I, I don't even see it. I'm not going to help. And, and the point he makes in this is, is God's love abiding in that person? You can answer the question. John doesn't. You have your Bibles, again, turn in, turn in them back to, to Deuteronomy. This is way back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, verse 7 through 11. I think this uh, gives some context to perhaps what John is, is teaching here. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7 through 11. Chapter 15 is part of, part of the law that God gave to his people through Moses. And then there was this part of the law where at the end of every seven years, you had to grant a release. In other words, if somebody borrowed money from you, seven years comes, boop, chapter nine, bankruptcy, they're free and clear. That would be sweet, right? Okay. Perfect society. Anyways, we'll get on. That's the rule. Now, in verse seven, it says this, if among you... One of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your lands that the Lord God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. 
Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you. And you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. And in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you. You shall open wide your hand to your brother. To the needy. And to the poor in your land. It sounds a lot like our passage in John. You've got the ability to help. You're seeing this brother in need, but you, you shut your own heart from doing anything to help him. You, you justify in your mind how he's going to be okay. You don't actually have to, to love him to rescue him. Do you see that? And John's question is, how could God's love, God's lavish love, be actually in that person who would do such a thing? And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I don't do that. I do not close my heart to people in need. I see a need and I take care of it or I can't remember a time I closed my heart. That's great. But I actually think sitting here in our day that sometimes we might let ourselves off the hook a little too early. Because what's presumed in John's question is that you actually know your brother well enough to know his needs. And one of the concerns I have for God's church, for people listening to this message, is that we might think too early, I don't do that. But the reason you don't do that is because you don't actually invest enough to know people that you would know their need. You actually have to know people to see their need. You have to be around them have to talk with them. Like I watch, and this is not, not, not to unnecessarily offend, but to try and appropriately apply. Um, I actually can see you guys every Sunday when I lead worship from here. And, and I watch as the church starts at 1030. And I see about this many people in here. You guys have known this. What happens by 1050? There's more people, right? A lot more people. And so I watch as people filter in throughout the morning and then filter out even before the closing song has, has ended. And my question to you is even earlier in John's question. It's not just that have you seen somebody and having the ability to meet their need not met it, but my question to you would be are you loving in a way that you can actually see people's need? I point back to verse 14. The one not loving abides in death. Do you actually love God's family? And that we as people would would appropriately apply that question to our lives. That we we might know. That we wouldn't be deluded by our own thinking. Because the church is the gathering of God's children. You actually have to be around people to see their need. And so John gives this exhortation in verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let us love 
in deed and in truth. And I think he gives us two sides of love. Like, as we, as we search this question of, like, am I loving? Is God's love abiding in me? We have to ask the question, what does love look like? And, and John gives us a definition of, of love as defined by God. And that's important. Don't let the world define love. Let me just tell you that. I've heard a lot of definitions of love that come from the world. And they're not real love because they don't come from God. So be careful that your definition of love is God's definition of love. And this is God's definition of love. Love defined by God is affection in action. That corresponds with God's truth. Affection in action that corresponds with God's truth. Now here's why. Um, Love is not words only. That's the first point John makes. And love is not action only. That's the second point John makes. Love requires actions, not merely words. But love also requires more than action. It requires truth. For love to be true, it actually has to care about the person that's being loved. Which I've labeled affection. In other words, think about this. If I give money to poor people because it makes me feel good about myself and because I can pop it on my Insta hashtagogram account and say like hashtag kindness, is that love? Church, is that love? No. (laughs) That's pride masquerading as hashtag kindness. Right? That's not love. If, If I give to people in need because I get a tax deduction, is that love? It is. It's love for money, (laughs) not people. And and so, like, action without the the affection, it's it's not actually love. It's hollow. It's hypocritical. So love is affection and action towards the members of God's family redeemed by the same blood, the blood of Jesus who laid aside his own life and laid down his life on our behalf that we might know love, be loved, love God, and love his people. And if you have known his love, it changes you and causes you to do the same. And we need to be reminded of this and we need to be stirred up to it because Truth be told, we're all leaky people. In other words, we leak out the truth that we have known. This is not a new message, is it? I would dare any Christian in here to say, this is the first time I've heard I was supposed to love people. This was great. But we need it again and again and again to be stirred up to the kind of love that God intends to be displayed among his people. Knowing helps us prepare It helps us remember how we have been loved and how we are to keep loving. And it knows us, excuse me, knowing helps us keep going. In verses 19 through 24, it really tells us how we will know how to keep loving. And I believe that what John is getting at in this section really goes back to the context of the Deuteronomy passage. Because when you try and love like Jesus loved, you are going to wrestle inside your heart because it is not natural to the natural man. The kind of love that Jesus says, lay aside your life for the Christians around you is not going to be an easy road. (laughs) You're going to argue with yourself. You're going to argue in your own heart like, ooh, that's too expensive. That costs too much. 
I can't possibly love like that. And so what John is, is getting to in this section is that we are going to practically have to persuade and assure our hearts to love like Jesus loved. You have to do that as a believer. You are going to have to persuade yourself to love like Jesus loved. And John tells us how. Your heart is going to fight you. Maybe your heart's going to say, I can't love like that. I've been hurt before. Don't raise your hands. How many of you have been hurt by the church? Good. Everybody's hands are up. Great. Okay. I'm just kidding. Online they can't see, but that's, that's the truth. Everybody has been hurt by the church. And so we have these things like, I can't love like that. It's too risky. I've been hurt before. They're just going to move to Idaho anyways. Why do I need to love like that? That one hurts. <laughs> Your heart's going to say, I can't love like that because it puts my future at risk. Like, how will I retire if I give up that that I have? Maybe your heart will say, I don't need to love like that because they got themselves into this mess and they've got to get themselves out of it. And even if I loved like that, they'd just get back in that mess anyway. So why risk the love that I have on behalf of somebody who's just going to end up in the same mess. Like these are the voices that we face in our lives when it comes to loving. But we know from what John has said and from what Jesus has demonstrated that we're not supposed to give in to this internal wrestling in our heart. So if we're going to live in love, we have to learn to handle this internal argument. And here is how you persuade yourself. We need to remind ourselves that our assurance, our ability to know that we are saved is attached to love for God's family. It does not save us, but it does assure us, which is immensely valuable. So when our hearts object, we must persuade our heart before God. When that internal argument is happening, you have to take your heart and remind it, dear heart, you live in the presence of God who is greater than you. You live in the presence of God who knows all things and who has commanded you to live and love like this. Suddenly my heart's arguments don't seem so convincing. Does that make sense? When I take the arguments that my heart has into the presence of God and I say, God, it costs too much. He says, really? God is too risky. And he says, really? I say, God, you don't understand. And he says, really? We have to persuade our hearts by realizing that we live before the God who has saved us, who sent his son into the world to take on flesh, to die on the cross, to bear our sins and our shame, to bring us to life in Jesus Christ, to transform us back into what he intended us to be, like him, in love. And so church, persuade and convince and assure your heart to trust and depend on God. 
to embrace what he has done for you through Jesus and do the same. And you will know that you are of the truth. I know the time is short, but the, the assurance that John gives is even sweeter. It gets better. That those who live in this way, that you whose hearts cease arguing with God in this way of love, you have a boldness and a confidence to stand somewhere you don't deserve to stand. You do not deserve to stand and have boldness in God's presence, and yet God says you can. Because he is not just God now, he is God our Father, and our relationship with him has changed. And when you desire to live in this way, having convinced and persuaded your heart to love in God's way, the promise that he gives you is the confidence that what you ask you will receive because you're living to please him and you're living in the way that pleases him and God the Father delights in this and is more than happy to supply you with all that you ask when your heart is aligned with his. Oh my word, how amazing is that? And this is the value of knowing these things, that you would have the confidence to boldly go before God's presence and to say, Lord, I need this, and to know before you ask, you have received. Because God delights in his children as they live in the way that he's called them to and instructed them to. Which truly brings us back to the gospel. That his commandment is this, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. And John says it's one commandment. The time when we came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his name and everything it means that he is God's son, he is Jesus the man, and he is the Christ, the savior of the world. And that having believed in this, the practical ongoing application of this is that we are loving one another just as he commanded us that God's son came into the world that took on flesh was given the name Jesus to save people from their sins that his righteousness is what makes us right with God that his death is what satisfies God's wrath for our sins and that belief in him means trusting him even in loving one another just as he commanded which brings us right back to the beginning a fellowship with the living God through Jesus Christ. That to cherish and keep the commands of Jesus is to cherish and keep Jesus himself. To hold his words and what he has said and taught in your heart and mind is to hold him in your heart and mind. And you can be sure that he not only is in you, but that you are then in him. And we know by this, by the spirit whom he has given us, Praise the Lord. So it is my desire that a passage like this would bring confidence to the hearts of you who truly are God's children. And that confidence would come because you see the life that evidences a love and affection for God's children. And I look around this church and I, I'm just, man, I would love to just call all y'all out for the love that I see displayed here. 
Because there are immense demonstrations of love constantly in this body of Christ that I have seen time and time again. Of caring for one another. Of loving one another. Of providing for one another. Of the ways that you serve one another in in making sure the lights work or the heat works. In dedicating yourself to teaching children the gospel of Jesus Christ week in and week out. To running over at the last minute to watch somebody's kids. To canceling the movie you were going to because somebody's marriage needs help. Time and time again, the love of God is displayed here. And it's not just meant to be commended, but it's bring, to bring confidence and assurance to you that you belong to Jesus, which is a dear thing to know. And even as I say that, uh, my heart for others is that as, you, as you've heard this passage this morning, that you would recognize that this kind of love is not present. And that in that, you would understand that a lack of this presence of love demonstrates that you are still in your sins. And that you will die under the condemnation of those who are still in their sins. Which is an eternal death of separation from the God who is life and all that is good in him and only the presence of his wrath for your sins. And the gospel that brought his children to him is still available to you. That if you would believe in his son, Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And if you're wondering how that happens and you want to talk more about that, I am more than happy to talk with you. If you know another person sitting around, you're like, could you explain the gospel to me? I want to be saved. Please ask. Because there's nothing we have a greater joy than is seeing people join the family of God here. We were all born under sin and death. We were all adopted into this family. And it gives us such great joy to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and to embrace you and to welcome you to the family of God. And so church, the goal is not to stir up a bunch of fake acts of love from people that are trying to earn or prove their salvation. But the point is that we would believe in Jesus and be saved, that we would know his love. And having believed and been saved, having come into fellowship with the eternal life, that our lives would be radically transformed so as to cause us to willingly and joyfully, time and time again, lay aside our own lives for the sake of God's people, which delights the Father, which honors the Lord Jesus Christ and keeps us abiding in him and he in us to bring the sweet assurance that we are his and the confidence that we have all that we ask from him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this passage and I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring it to bear in the lives of your people. And that you would bring it to the lives, to bear in the lives of those who are not yet yours. That those who are not yet yours, Lord, that they would see your invitation, that your command is to believe in the Son, that they might pass from death to life. That they might embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and be born again to be a part of your children and to begin to experience and to know the love that you have and then the love of your family amongst one another. Lord, be at work 
to bring this about by your spirit through the conviction of your word. And Lord, for your church, may you convict us where we fall short. And may you encourage us and stir us up to live as Jesus Christ has lived and calls us and obliges us to live. That we may know the assurance and the confidence that we have. That we may live according to your will and to your word. That we may know the joy of fellowship with you. And the love that you have for us through the love we see displayed among one another. Make yourself known to the world by the love they see displayed here at this church. May the gospel of Jesus Christ go out from this place because people know we are believers and his disciples by the way that we love one another. Amen.